What up, this is Dart Adams, and this is episode 61 of Dart Against Humanity, meaning it's the first episode of season four. The last episode I did was August 16th, which was the day before my 44th birthday. A lot has changed since then. One thing being that I actually have a book out now. It's uh, the best damn hip hop writing, the book of Dart on Super Champ Books, which was um, edited by Amir Ali Saeed and... The publisher is Amir Saeed, known as Saeed, the man who made uh, several books like, you know, the Beat Tips Manual. But what happens is, uh, so the book goes live October 8th. It exceeds all of our expectations and Amazon's to the point where it had to be reordered, 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 backordered to the point where as of yesterday, if you went to try to order it or buy it from Amazon, the book of Dart, it would tell you there was a one to three month wait. As of right now, if you go to Amazon, it says in stock on November 15th, 2019. So I guess that's when the re-up order will actually come in and it'll actually be available to ship immediately. So I had been sending people to other places to buy it, like Barnes and Noble. I've been sending them to Walmart, whereas in Walmart, there's five left. Uh, there was there's a small uh, independent bookstore, I believe, called Powell's Online. They initially had 20. I don't know if they had to re-up. And the sales have been surprising. Now, one of the things that I've never really done is I've never gone the um the route where I never did a Patreon. You know, I, I never did anything where it was a pre-order type situation. Because I do everything with the mindset that I don't want to put it out there that if I generate something or try to sell something and I don't get the support I think I was going to get, I it would affect the way I do. I make art. It's the same uh, principle behind. There were a lot of people that did uh, YouTube and made YouTube videos. But then when it came down to it, when the algorithm changed uh monetarily it didn't make sense for them to do that kind of labor for so little return because for them it was pretty much a job since they were generating so much income from it and getting noticed and going to vidcon and what have you and it kind of killed a it kind of killed a lot of their passion for it cuz they were like I could just get a job and this is actually affecting my psyche and the way I interact with people and giving me a false sense of my importance in the world. And when that happened, it made a lot of people just stop Facebook altogether. And one thing I didn't want to do is I didn't want to put that kind of value on what I did. So it would make it would negatively affect what I do. So I never did that. So putting out a book makes sense to me being old. It's. I worked on this. This is my back catalog. This is actual labor that I did. It's in something. It's in a format that I fully understand and I grew up with, even in this changing um, digital age. So it's a product. What I didn't expect was the support that I got and how many people came out and bought it and continued to buy it and it spread. The book goes live October 8th. We announce it October 10th after it's on its second reorder from Amazon, which my publisher told me, which I was like, how is that even possible? Then what happened from there was um, people bought it in droves. It sold out. They did another reorder. It sold out again. Another reorder. And this kept happening over and over again. Uh, it happened to the point where by the 11th of October, I was uh, the number one uh, book in a specific category on Amazon, uh, music history and criticism. And I'm like, wait a minute. I'm the number one book on an independent publisher on Amazon. So they're different categories. So I was number one in music history and criticism, which was insane. But I was like number 
14 in like rap books, which was respectable because, you know, the top 13 books are either real books or they're audio books. And they're from legitimate publishers, big publishers, publishing houses, people that have PR agents shit. And I'm like, oh, wow. That's nuts, but I don't think much of it because I don't think my book's going to get any higher up that list. It keeps climbing, meaning it sells more and more and more and more. And it gets to the point where me, somebody who, again, tries not to pay attention to numbers and things like that to, to, because I don't put that kind of I don't put my um, value into those type of things. Versus what versus what I do, but everybody is sending me texts and tweets and hitting me on Instagram DM and they're like screenshots like yo um your book just moved up into the top ten in in rap books on Amazon or your book is still the number one um best selling new release on Amazon. And it just kept going higher and higher and higher to the point where I was checking Amazon every hour for the update to see where it was selling just to see that and get that rush, get that rush. And then I was like, yo, I don't want to live like this. I need to stop because if forever, if forever, it, if for any reason it drops, it would affect my feeling about the book and what I'm doing as opposed to me doing the work. So I would just I would do something where I was like, I'm only going to check it at midnight every night because if I spend all day looking at this, it's going to affect me. And I have to keep in mind, it's an independent book. There are people who are well known who have books out. And when this thing stops selling, I don't want to feel bad. You know, I don't want to. I, I should know, like check myself, uh, manage my expectations. So I figure Three days of high volume selling, and then that's when we get back to reality. That doesn't happen. I did 10 straight days of high volume sales out the gate on an independent book. I think the highest I got was I was the third or fourth best selling um, rap book for a, for a period of time on Amazon. And... I was outselling Shea Serrano for 12 hours until, of course, he did something great on social media and people went out and they bought his book to support him, what have you. But I was beating Shea Serrano for 12 hours to give you an idea of how this independent book was selling. I did not expect uh, people to actually come out and support this book that way. And I didn't understand why it kept selling out. It was explained to me by my publisher that what uh, Amazon does to avoid having uh, a, a huge amount of leftover uh, stock in their warehouse is they do something called, um, and also uh, some other of my publishing friends explained to me, they do micro orders. It's the same premise behind when you have an independent record label, you're not going to buy 200 CDs from an indie label. You're likely going to buy 30. But if those 30 sell out super quick, you're going to order more. You might order 120. If those 120 go out super fast, what do you do? You got to order more than 120 because you want them to last and be around because you figure it's going to sell over time. But if those fly off the shelves as soon as they come in and it gets to the point where you're just going to have to take orders for them and take the money as they come in, as they're being printed, and you're going to have to print more. And as you print them, they're going out. And now it gets to be a thing where you're buying the book. And the date that it's going to be shipped to you is going to be later than if they had it on hand and in stock. Because they're back ordering. And what happens now is when you get a certain amount of books, it's not going through just one distributor. It's going through multiple distributors because... There's more than one place to buy it because there's bigger demand. So at some point, people were so Amazon centric of buying the book that they were so backed up and had to get an order to fill the demand to the point I was sending them elsewhere. So I was sending people to Barnes and Noble. I was sending people 
later. I didn't even know that it was being sold there. Someone told me on Twitter and was she she told me I bought it from um I bought it from here. And I'm like, I didn't even know that place existed. So I put it up. Matter of fact, what what is it called? I'm sitting right next to my laptop. Powell's. So she was like, I bought my copy from Powell's. I was like, who the hell is Powell's? So she sends me the link. And I'm like, yo, you can buy it from Powell's. And when that got to be too crazy, people were like, yo, where can I else can I buy the book? You know, because some people don't want to buy from Amazon. And I was like, let's see. Uh, you could buy it from Walmart. And there are people that don't want to buy from Walmart. But the thing is that the price at Walmart is really low. And... People started buying from Walmart because they couldn't buy from Amazon because when they went to Amazon, they told them there was a one to three month wait for it. So now there's only five books left at Amazon for I mean, not Amazon at Walmart for 1973 when the book was originally um, charged uh, $24.99. Here's another thing. When your book starts selling well, the price drops, the price drops, the price drops. So to have a book that started $24.99 on October 8th and you go to buy it now on Amazon and it's like below $20, that tells you it's been moving. At one point, I was in the top 10, I was in the top five in um, uh, new releases on Amazon. Then of course, you know, time passes, so I dropped to the top 10. Then I was in the top 20, I was like 17. Then I dropped down to 19. And, you know, since the delay happened where I was sending people other places to buy the book, it went all the way down to number 37. But this is after weeks. Again, the book came out on the 8th. It is now November 1st. So the book's been out for over three weeks. So to have my book be in the top 40 in Amazon sales with a delay of a month. And it's an independent book. But it's selling other places. It's surreal. And I did not expect this to happen. It's been overwhelming seeing people send me uh, texts and pictures on um, social media of them just getting their book. Uh, talking about my book on social media. A lot. I wrote a lot of acknowledgments in the back and and just the idea that people are buying the book and seeing their name acknowledged in the back of the book is insane to me. It's a whole different feeling. Uh, you're overwhelmed. There's stress and you stress involved. So. There's a whole different level. There's something that I didn't understand psychologically how a book release would affect me. Um, when something's going badly, you already have an idea. You're preparing yourself for that. Like you're you're managing your expectations. You're hoping to not be too down. You're like, hey, if it comes out and does so and does so and so or whatever, you know, it's all good. You know, it's my first book. This and this. When it does, you don't prepare yourself for what if it exceeds your expectations and does well beyond you ever expecting it to do. What if people really come out and support you in droves in ways you didn't think they would? You don't have that in your tool bag. You don't have anything in your in your mind saying, hey, um, if it's going too well or it's selling too well and people are talking about it in too glowing terms, you need to have a way to dial things down and keep yourself grounded. Who the fuck thinks that? Who? That's not even that doesn't even come into your mind. So that was one of the things I had to do. And I had to manage things again, I mentioned so that. I wasn't having my eyes glued to a screen all the time and placing all my value on how the book is doing. And another thing I had and another thing that was interesting was people were so invested in what was happening with the book that I was like, all right, I'm going to have to do an update on Instagram at midnight every night to let people know how the book is going because people have been hitting me up, hitting me up, hitting me up. It was the same um, premise behind back in the days. When a song was really popular, rather than have people request it all the time, they just said, we're going to play it at the top of every hour. 
So I was just like, yo, I'm going to update y'all on what's happening at the top of every day. This is where it is. This is where it is on the charts. This is how it's doing. But the thing is that that was me. I did that for Instagram. But people were so invested. They were telling me how it was doing. So I didn't even have to check. And that was something brand new. They're like, people are rooting for you so hard that they are just inspired by the fact you put out an independent book and it's selling. You're outselling books about the Beatles for now. That's another thing for now. Books come out every Tuesday and somebody's going to drop a book that's going to make yours sink all the way down because they're going to be the new hot shit. Which I'm totally cool with because I didn't expect this shit to happen anyway. Uh, Kathy Yandoli released an incredible book on October 22nd. Uh, God Save the Queens. The Essential History of Women in Hip Hop. That became the next number one uh, new release. And it is well deserved. Uh, I think y'all need to go out and buy that. And the book that I have here. I don't really know Russ like that. But. The publisher sent me Russ's It's All in Your Head. Get out of your own way. Oh, get out of your way. It's a yellow book. It's big type. You know, I'm flipping through it right now. I haven't actually like read a whole lot of it because I've been doing my own writing. But yeah, man, the book of darts surprised me. One thing I would love for people to do if you purchased the book of dart and you've read it. It's not that long a book. It's less than 200 pages. Uh, it reads really quick. I was as somebody. OK, when you write something and you wrote something 10 years ago, eight years ago, seven years ago, your attachment to it is completely different. I read something I wrote 10, 8, 7, 6, 5 years ago, and I just think to myself how I'm more efficient now. I can research way better now. I could have gotten to the point better now. If I wrote something where I was angry when I wrote it, there's a better way I could have done that. There's a better way I could have articulated that fact. So there's um, a couple pieces in the book that I wouldn't have chosen to include. The Nicki Minaj piece, I wouldn't have. I actually got into um, some issues with people over that book piece because of how it read. It's been edited. But how it read... Because I was frustrated with the women that weren't getting looks. And I was frustrated with the fact that there were women who had to hinge everything, all their hope on Nikki doing well in hopes that people would look at them, even though they already deserved a look. There are so many different ways I could have articulated my points without coming off the way I did when I was sour and pissed off when I wrote that particular piece. I wrote that piece in 2010. I wouldn't write it that way now. I'm 44 years old going on 45. I wouldn't process things the same way I did in 2010 now in 2019 going into 2020. So there's a lot of that. Um, there's a lot of articles that I read that I'm like, wow, I was, this is really good because I'd already in my head figured out I could write this way better now. No, I could do this way better now. I could do this way different now. But when people read it, they have a completely different takeaway than I do because my attachment to it is completely different. I love Redman's Dare is a Dark Side. Redman hates Dare is a Dark Side because of what it meant to him, the, the place he was in his life when he made it. So his attachment and what that album means to him is way different than what it means to me when I heard it in 1994. To me, it's one of the greatest winter albums ever made up there with Tikal and anything Earl made. And Earl actually released the album uh, 30 minutes ago. So... To give you an idea of my feeling and attachment to some of the pieces in the book. But when I read it, I'm like, oh, this works. Because it's in chapters, it's in sections like personal essays, all this stuff. And I read it and I'm just like, wow, like this is well done. Uh, 
there should definitely be a second edition with newer stuff that I wrote, stuff that I wrote more recently. There's recent stuff I did too, but more recently, like things that follow more the uh, the Knowledge Darts series that I did on Mass Appeal, which has been taken off the archives now because Mass Appeal no longer deals with that. So I have all those and I'd really like to make a book just based on, you know, uh, all my Knowledge Darts pieces starting from... Um, Back in the days when I wrote for um, that site that was being funded by Steve Stout's translation, The Stashed, there should have been 12 editions <laughs> of um, Knowledge Darts on The Stashed, but only, I think, six or seven actually got published because the person who was in charge of it uh, just wouldn't run them. And the the story was that they didn't have a budget, but they couldn't come out and be a man and tell me that. I had to know from people that were there. So I was like, so you're just going you're gonna to tell me that you don't have the budget for me and whatever. Just keep string me along. And ultimately what happened was I sent in a piece and I had to hit the person up. And I'm just like, yo, are you going to run the piece? Because I haven't heard anything about it. And his response was late. Oh, we're still doing this. At no point had we're adults. We're, we're grown men. At no point did we ever discuss discontinuing knowledge darts. No. Matter of fact, he hadn't talked to me in a minute. And I'm just like, yo, t what's going on? Why do I have to track you down? Just be a grown up and tell me what's happening. And he told me some half ass shit. I actually knew why what was going on. He was like, it's not doing what we expected it to do. This and this and this and this and this and this. And I'm just like, dude, you don't have a budget anymore. But he didn't tell me that. So I'm like, cool, run the last piece. And he never ran the last piece. I put the la took the last piece. I posted it on my medium and I um, sent them an invoice for it anyways because he owed me. You can't try to game a grown ass man. In this industry, if you owe me money for my labor, I'm getting my money. Now, moreover. So, yeah, there's the book. I was really surprised the support that I got. Um, there was the stress caused by it doing well, as opposed to me worrying that it was going to flop and catch a brick, which I was more prepared for. The outpouring of um, support and people being happy that I finally took 44 years to put out a book. It's not going to be that much of a wait for the next one, I promise you. Anyway, another thing I did right before that was and that went left for me was B the BBC chose me uh, to participate in the greatest of all time hip hop song list. And they asked me for a top five. When I sent the top five, I sent it with an addendum that I hate top fives. I think top fives are narrow casting the genre. And you can't get a good um, grasp on what was great over a 40 year uh, recorded history of an individual genre of music by listing a top five. I was like, this shit needs to be at least 25. Just to be fair and not narrow cast the genre, but I'm going to do this regardless because the way I felt was if I didn't participate, the alternative was me complaining about everyone else who did and their choices. So what I did was I gave my choices and then I complained about everybody else's choices. <laughs> so um, it turns out that they chose 108 critics. And it went pear-shaped, to use a phrase from the British. And the number one song that was chosen to be the greatest of all time hip-hop song in the 40-year history, in the 40-year recorded history of rap music was uh, Notorious B.I.G.'s Juicy. For those of you that don't understand why that uh, was a conundrum wrapped in an enigma, wrapped in a riddle, Locked into a into Pandora's box, tied with chains, uh, blessed by druids, 
cursed by wizards and warlocks and eldritch witches and then thrown into the depths of, of a sea that doesn't exist anymore uh, is that Juicy wasn't even the big single off of Ready to Die. Juicy got overshadowed by Flavor in Your Ear. Then the Flavor in Your Ear remix, which came out October 14th, 1994. It was a Friday. Then the video hit. And then two weeks later, um, Killer Instinct hit the arcade. I'll never forget that uh, fall. In 1994, it was my senior year of high school. Anyways. Juicy wasn't the song that blew Biggie up. It was the One More Chance remix. And that affected the sales of that album over the uh, holidays leading into... Uh, the winter because Notorious B.I.G.'s Ready to Die was another great winter album. Great winter albums, Ready to Die. Um, I've done a podcast about this before, um, previously talking about the seasons. Uh, of course, I will always say Cypress Hill's first album, Cypress Hill, which came out in the summer of 1991. It didn't really blow up until uh, fall, winter, 91, 92. And it's funny because I mentioned before on the next winter, it went back into the into the um into the charts on Billboard because, again, great winter album. But this song list was just so insane. And I was beside myself seeing people's choices. I'm actually trying to look for the list and I can't find it anywhere. Oh wait. Is this it? No, that's my that's the Gmail. Hmm. Anyways, um I just saw the list and I was just like I was seeing um journalists' lists of their top five and I'm just what? What? And people were talking to me like, how come all your songs are like old? I'm like, they're not. It's not that they're old. The acts the greatest. So when I think about the greatest, I think the most influential. When I think the most influential, I think the ones that affected the most people, that the most people heard, that were the seminal, the seminal's joints. And in order to go seminal and gr most influential and greatest, that all says start at the beginning. So that means start in 1979. And then go forward, 80, 81, 82, 83, 84, 85, 86, 87, 88. Then keep going, keep going, keep going. Like, if you gave me a top 25, I get to Troy, they reminisce over you, you know? But I'm starting at the beginning, so that means I'm starting with Rapper's Delight. I'm starting with The Message. Like... I'm doing Lyrics of Fury. I'm doing um, Don't Believe the Hype. I'm doing those type of joints. You know what I'm saying? Like, that's the only thing I can think to do. It makes sense. You start at the beginning and then you go through what are the most important. Jack the Ripper by LL Cool J. The gold standard for the dish track. You know, you have to start there. You have to go back to the original, the original, the original. What started this? What started this? You know, ain't no half step in Big Daddy Kane, a raw Big Daddy Kane, you know. Uh, fuck the police NWA or gangsta gangsta NWA. You know. Dope Man, N.W.A., Boys in the Hood, Eazy-E, Six in the Morning, Ice-T, P.S.K. by Schoolie D, Batteram, Toddy T. You know, you have to start at the places where it things diverged and branched off from there. That's my mindset. So when I saw the list that people were doing, it was like, what is this hipster shit? I'm still looking for the list. I actually just put the I just took the phone and just started talking. BBC greatest greatest 
hip-hop songs. Because, again, um, hilarious. The list posted October 8th, 2019, the same day my book came out, which is hilarious. So... 100 critics in 15 countries. I was one of 108 critics. I did no idea they were going to ask 108 critics. So, um, the top 25 was Kendrick Lamar's All Right, Rosa Parks by Outkast, All of the Lights by Kanye West, what? Grinding by The Clips, Lose Yourself by Eminem, Doo-Wop That Thing, Lauren Hill, International Players Anthem, UGK, UNITY, Queen Latifah, Fuck the Police, NWA, It Was a Good Day, Ice Cube, B.O.B., Outkast, They Reminisce, they reminisce Over You, Pete Rock, Seal Smooth, Was It 15, Rappers Delight, Sugar Hill Gang, Was It 14, Paid in Full by Irby and Rakim's at 13, Runaway by Kanye West, The Pusha T's at 12, Elastic Relaxation at, 10, at 11, Dear Mama at 10, New York State of Minds at 9, Passing Me By, Far Side 8, 93 Till Infinity, Souls of Mischief, that definitely would have been on my top 25. Cream by Wu-Tang Clan, 6. Nothing But a G Thing, 5, definitely. The Message, Grandmaster Flash of Furious 5 is at 4. Shook Ones, Part 2 is at 3. Fight the Power, Public Enemies at number 2. And Juicy was at number 1. Now... Don't know how that happened. Full list of critics who participated and how they voted. Now, um, DJ Jab of Fat Beats went Terminator X to the Edge of Panic, Fourth Chamber, Peter Piper, Play That Beat by GLOB and WizKid, and Time's Up OC. Uh, Biba Adams, who I've never, I don't know, Player Slum Village, Self Destruction. Push It, Ambitions of a Writer, and Big Pimpin'. I don't know what the thought process was behind those five. I have no idea. Me. One, Rappers Delight, Sugar Hill Gang, 1979. Me. Two, Sucker MCs, Run DMC, 1984. Three, Lyrics of Fury, Eric B. and Rakim. Four, Rebel Without a Pause, Public Enemy, 88. And five, The Message, Grandmaster Flash of Furious 5. I would have had the message higher, but the message wasn't entirely written by Grandmaster Flash of Furious 5, nor was it their idea. The last verse was actually all Melly Mel. Had it been higher, I would have had it there. The only reason Rapper's Light is number one is because Rapper's Delight actually kicked off everything. Even though, you know, we know that it wasn't Big Bank Hank that actually wrote the lyrics. He was actually reciting rhymes written by Grandmaster Kaz given to him in a rhyme book. So in case anybody thinks I'm being hypocritical with my list, that's why. Rapper's Delight started everything it wasn't the first rap single you know uh most people will say it was the b-side of um you're my candy sweet by fatback band on um, personality jock which actually started hitting radio in august 1979 which then uh pushed uh sylvia to be like yo there's a rap song on the radio i gotta put mine out and that's when she recorded rapper's delight august she was auditioning people in august um 1979 the stories in um, a documentary about the uh, Sugar Hill Gang, I think it's called I Want I Want My Name Back. It used to be on um, Netflix. I don't know where it is now, but this might be on YouTube by now or Vimeo or something. But in any way, that's out. So I was involved in that list and I was just like, what? Because the thing is that when Juicy came out on cassette, I have the single the single for Ju Juicy. The first side is Juicy, A, and the second song on it is Unbelievable. And then you flip it over, it's, you know, the same thing. But everybody played, fast-forwarded past Juicy, played Unbelievable. Then they flipped it over and played Unbelievable again. They flipped over to the single, played Unbelievable again. If you had the CD single, you just played Unbelievable repeatedly. If you had the vinyl, you would skip ahead to Unbelievable. Nobody ever played Juicy. I heard Juicy on the radio. I saw the video on TV, what have you. But when Heads had an opportunity, they played Unbelievable. Even when the, the tape came out. When the tape came out, nobody ever played Juicy. They skipped Juicy. They fast-forwarded past Juicy. So for 
it to take on the life it did now, 25 years after the fact, is odd. Because who played Juicy voluntarily? Neither here nor there. Now, um, I went out and I, I'm a huge fan. I like the zombie genre. I became fascinated with the zombie genre growing up in um, the South End, Lower Roxbury, during the, uh, the crack era. So, for me, zombies represented crack addicts or the fiends that I remember seeing when I was a little kid. They were on heroin or something else different. The difference is that, like, okay, so zombies used to be slow. They used to be plodding. They used to look like half dead. The difference with, like, crack addicts is a lot of times that they were sped up. They were manic. They they were quick. So, when they changed the zombie genre... And made zombies um, aggressive and super fast and attentive and like, but still single minded is that they will go all across the place just looking for brains. Right. Um, That changed things. So I've always liked seeing how people took a different take on the zombie genre, starting with like 28 days later, you know. And then people kept coming up with different wrinkles, different wrinkles. Warm Bodies is an underrated one. Zombieland, I thought, was super, um, it was innovative, I thought. You know, anytime somebody comes up with a new take on the zombie genre, it keeps things going forward. I enjoyed that. I liked um, the show Daybreak, which isn't even about zombies. It's about the post-apocalypse, but it uses a bunch of tropes. And... um, it uses a bunch of old tropes and a bunch of old um, themes and like cliches from the past and and like other genre films, and it turns them on their head. I like that. That means that the writers actually are uh, thinking of the viewers. They're thinking of the audience, and they don't want to short them. They know, okay, we're going to do this, this, this again. And then they go left. And you're like, oh, okay, good. I was waiting. I, I, I was hoping that you guys didn't do the same old, same old. And there have been times the zombie genre has been done on Netflix. And they didn't do a good job. It just wasn't inventive enough. I can't remember the name of, um, the, of that uh, zombie joint that came out months ago that just fell flat. They didn't, even, they didn't put in any new wrinkles, nothing. So anyway, I went to the theater to see Zombieland Double Tap, and I was, uh, what's a good word? Whelmed. I wasn't underwhelmed, just whelmed. It was so disappointing. They dropped the ball in so many different ways. One thing as a writer that I just hope that you um, please consider the viewers and the audience. They made this film knowing that there was a whole lot of zombie content out there. You know, you have The Walking Dead, Fear the Walking Dead. You have uh, whatever, Generation Z and all this other stuff. And um, they had an opportunity to keep building on the world that they had that drew people in and elaborate. And do more world building. And draw you in further. And they didn't do that. They did the surface level shit. Like, oh, zombies evolved. They didn't get into detail. There was a situation where... um, You can... So, when you make a script, right? Your script is... If you're going to make a movie that's uh, an hour and 40 minutes... It's going to be in a 100 page script. So, they... When I saw it was a short film, I was like, "Uh uh-oh, because that means that they weren't going to spend a good amount of time on any kind of elaboration. And the thing is that people are under the impression that elaboration is to take a long time. No. One line, one sentence, one statement to another character is good enough for the audience. So there are new zombies. Zombies evolved. You run across new people. If you don't discuss um, new strategies on how to differentiate the newer zombies from each other, 
Because if the zombies evolved, that means that you have to get smarter. You have to evolve. You have to come up with new strategies. And if someone's still alive out there and they discuss those new zombies, there's an opportunity. Okay, so people were talking about, they were like one-upping themselves. Like, I have this. I have this. I have this rule. I have this rule. Well, one of the places they could have done that is they could have gone back and forth elaborating with how they figured out how to differentiate the new zombies and how to stop them, the evolved zombies. And that was right there and they didn't do it. And when I saw that they didn't do that, I'm like, okay. And then there were other spots in the film where they left a hole. I was like, yo, they could have done this and they didn't have to do extra stuff. They didn't have to spend another five minutes on the movie. They could have one extra line. One of just just one point of emphasis here saying this here. Elaborate. Give me another sentence of elaboration that would further make immerse me into this world and make me think it's real. It just seemed really surface. The first version, the first uh, zombie land kind of had us uh, invest emotionally in this uh, family, this friend group. You know how they came family. We jump ahead years. And they didn't do the work to make us um, care more about this new family. They introduced, eh, there's a new dynamic. They're older. They're more settled in. They've been together longer. But how long? You know? They give you a... a, a they, they run through it. Because they don't... They just want to get to the um, action. The action. The action. The action. Spend some time on some elaboration. Do some character building. Do some world building. And the time that's passed, the world has changed in some way, shape, or form. And then it's like, you'll come up on, they'll come up on a new group of people and then they won't do any fucking elaboration. They ran across a community. This is going to, I don't really like, I don't give a fuck to spoil this movie because it's not that important. They come across, and this is a point that pissed me off. They come across a new, um, a new group of people, right? A new settlement. And at no point do they explain how they have power. Nobody discusses it. Nobody talks about it. But when it's time to kill off a big horde of zombies that are attacking, all of a sudden, hey, we, they have, and they say the way that they've come up with how to power their community. And that's what they're going to use to kill the zombies. Nobody mentioned that shit at any point. Nobody made the elaboration about that. They didn't even talk about how the community came to be. They didn't do shit. But all of a sudden, now this is going to be how they kill the zombies. But the thing was that when they got to the community, I didn't give a fuck about the people in the community. Because the people, in the, nobody in the community actually did anything to establish themselves for me to care. It was just important to get there because one of the characters was there. And they were following her. That's not enough. That's and the thing is that this is supposed to be a sequel. Sequel is supposed to be better than the original. All you have to do is put forth some goddamn effort. And I felt as a um, as the audience, as a consumer, that they didn't respect the audience enough. And the thing is that they kind of made jokes about, hey, you know, there's a whole bunch of you know zombie content out there where. Well, here's the thing. If there's more zombie content out there, that means that you have an obligation to push the envelope more and do more and come up with more wrinkles to stand out above the noise. And they didn't do that. I don't even remember how long ago it's been since I saw this shit, maybe three weeks. And I'm so mad that I was like, yo, I have to talk about this when I do my podcast in November. And I thought it'd be dope because... It's gone. I don't even know where it is. I don't even know if it's like if people are still watching the shit in theaters. That's how underwhelming it was. But I will tell you that um, again, I was talking about Daybreak. Daybreak turned so many on Netflix turned so many different uh teen 
and post-apocalyptic and zombie and genre uh, tropes and themes and cliches and use them on the audience and then turn them on their head and then used um, all the different uh, fandom themes and things that like people who watch different shows and they grow fandoms and they're like, all right, are you going to do this for the audience? Are you going to do this for the audience? Are you going to do this for the audience? And then they did it in 10 episodes. And it's funny because it's an, it's an adaptation of a, um, of a graphic novel, Daybreak. And I got to tell you, I've never read Daybreak. I've seen the covers. I have no idea what Daybreak is actually about. So I don't even know how much of a, um adaption this is, even though based on the covers, I don't think that they dealt with the world of high school like this did. So I actually have to like get into that, but um, I was really impressed with how they knew we're going to do an episodic show on Netflix and we know that people are going to binge it and we know that the audience is going to think one thing and we're going to turn shit on their head and we're going to and we're going to make it so that people want to see season 2 based on how we close it and i will say that the the last 5 minutes of episode 10 perfectly made it so that i need to see what happens in season 2 and i think another show that did that well was on um, election Election had me like, what the fuck's going on? What's going on? What's going on? What's going on? And then like the last two or three episodes of Election, it, it jumps ahead. And by the last scene and the last episode of Election, I absolutely need season two. And I need season two uh, sooner rather than later. You know, I mean, there's some shows that had the cliffhanger on, on Netflix, like between like uh, between or is it in between? Or some shit, and we're never going to get that um resolution now. Um, I believe there's the society, the one about the kids on an alternate reality, you know, and 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 they're trying to get back home. That one is another one where I need season two. When I think about Daybreak versus uh the society and um election, it just makes me think about. What I would do if I was a showrunner and I was a creator and I was a writer and I had my own series, you know, and, you know, the team I would put together, how the music would go, who do who do this, who 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 I would have cast, all that stuff. Um, but also back to the main theme, um, I'm going to do this podcast for the next 15 straight weeks. Until episode 75. Then it's going to go on another break. And then when it comes back from that break, we're going to do 25 straight weeks until we do episode 100. And that will be season, the end of season five. And then we'll figure out what we do from there. Uh, also, during the, uh, the interim, I've done work with uh, the Boston Legends podcast. So um, what happened was <laughs> on the Boston Legends side... We wanted to do jersey drops and sales and stuff like that. But what ended up happening was our distributor was going through some issues. because And we ultimately needed to find a new distributor and manufacturer for the throwback uniforms. And also, we had already had to deal with the fact that we had to push back things. We couldn't do everything in the summer, so we're going to do it all the way through the fall and winter going into 2020 instead because also um, one of the people that we picked for the line is um, Scooney Penn, and Scooney Penn has an MBA job. So Scooney Penn wasn't going to be available to just come in and you know do everything. And the other person that we have, um, Wayne Turner, Wayne Turner uh, does basketball camps and you know things, that, things of that nature. And he's an individual. He like works with individuals. So he wasn't available to just come in and do certain things. So we had to space stuff out. And the beauty of that is that we get new distrib get, get a new distributor, new um, manufacturer, new uh, and do all these other things. But we can, you know, 
recalibrate what we're doing and we don't have to rush it anymore. We could do it right. I'd rather do it right than try to rush it along and make excuses for subpar um, content and stuff like that. So again, um, we're going to be doing this from today all the way until uh, for 15 weeks, pause, and then come back and then continue in um, spring 2020 and do 25 straight episodes and then we'll figure out what happens from there. And that'll be 100 episodes of Dart Against Humanity. This has been uh, quite the um, journey, man. We're going to enter 2020. I started this podcast back in April 2018. I had no idea what I was doing or how I was doing it. And I look and I see how many places have picked it up. Also, another thing. uh, Please, if you've bought the book, The Book of Dart, go on Amazon, review it. And also, for those of you that don't know, uh, Dart Against Humanity is now on SoundCloud. It's on MixCloud. And it's also on AudioMac. So if you're looking for back episodes of it and you can't find it anywhere else, AudioMac, SoundCloud, MixCloud. Okay, in addition to a whole bunch of other distributors, there were some distributors I tried to get it on and I don't know what happened. Pandora never really got back to me. Um, Deezer never got back to me. Um, there was another one that like I thought it was going to end up somewhere. Uh, I hit up Luminary. Luminary. I don't know what they were doing. They did nothing. But also, uh, you have to know that uh, where I record this. Uh, got bought by Spotify. So Anchor is bought by Spotify. And I don't know exactly how that's going to affect everything going forward, but I will keep you updated. But again, if you listen to Dart Against Humanity on a distributor that I don't readily um, acknowledge, please tell me so I can so I can fix that. Well, um, I think I covered everything so far. This has probably been one of the longest Dart Against Humanities because so much has happened and I needed to update everybody. That's all. One.